Pour forth, we beseech thee, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In his book, This Monastic Moment, incidentally written to commemorate the arrival of our brothers at Volmud in South Africa, the Reverend John de Grucci, in Chapter 4, entitled, In This Time and Place, Subtopic, Open to the World, Hidden in God, while quoting Bonhoeffer, has this to say. This world reinterpretation of the Bible which was integral to the church becoming open to the other, was intended to make concepts such as repentance, faith, justification, rebirth, and sanctification accessible to secular people. He was not suggesting that these concepts be discarded any more than he was jettisoning scripture. Even so, there are terms that speak from faith to faith. That is, they make sense within the life of the church where the language of faith is understood. By analogy, there is no reason why cricket lovers should ditch words like gully, maiden over, or leg before just because the uninitiated do not understand them. They are cold words, essential to every lover of the game. The same would apply to doctrines like the Trinity, virgin birth, etc., which should not be thrust onto the world in a take-it-or-leave-it manner, but be taught and celebrated in the life of the church as mysteries of faith. In this way, prayer, worship, sacraments, and the creed remain hidden at the heart of the church. That is why Bonhoeffer says that all Christian talk must arise out of prayer and be expressed by doing justice in the world. The church would then be known by its penultimate witness to the reign of God through its service to the world rather than by the disciplines and doctrines that sustain its life of faith, hope, and love. And it is in that service to the world that the church shares in solidarity with people of other faiths and those of no faith at all. End quote. I am therefore unfortunate enough to stand before you this morning to preach when we commemorate one of the major doctrines or mysteries of the Christian faith, that is the Incarnation, as we celebrate this Feast of the Annunciation. Although it is crucial for us to understand how God came to be human, it is also confusing at times because rarely does God, the author of nature, 
contradict nature, but usually works with nature to achieve God's ends. But in this case, he did. I will therefore disappoint some of us by not going into the depths of the mystery of the Incarnation. That I will leave to the realm of the terms that speak from faith to faith. Instead, the Spirit reads me this morning to speak about the motivation behind the Incarnation, which hopefully will qualify as this worldly interpretation. Now, uh, the motivation behind the Incarnation was nothing but pure love. God loved us from the beginning, and when we failed, he decided to come to be born, live like us, and redeem us like one of us. Our salvation became God's project throughout the Old Testament times, and the message of redemption became even more intense with the prophets, especially Isaiah, the prophet of hope. In the passage we heard from the first reading this morning, which was Isaiah 7, 10 to 14, Isaiah is preaching to King Ahaz of Jerusalem, who was under an imminent threat of attack from the northern kingdom of Israel, which had aligned itself with the pagan kingdom of Aram. King Ahaz responded with unbelief to God and his prophet that God will deliver Judah. Isaiah asks Ahaz to ask God for a sign as proof, but he refuses. Not so much because he did not want to tempt God, because everybody knew he was a wicked king, but because he was crafty and trying to arraign himself with the king of Assyria, another pagan king, for protection. This frustrates Isaiah, and he tells Ahaz that despite his refusal, God is going to give him a sign anyway. It is in this context that the promise of a savior is given for the very is given a name for the very first time. The second time being during the Annunciation, as we just heard in the Gospel. The young woman shall bear a son, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. You will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus, which means God saves. And so, we have a God who is with us and who saves. Although this did not happen in the time of King Ahaz, it at least assured him that Judah will have a future a sign of perpetuity of the nation. We are celebrating this feast a few weeks before the Easter Triduum, when we celebrate the mystery of Christ's suffering and death and later resurrection. At times it is impossible not to wonder 
whether these two mysteries that we are celebrating within weeks of each other, one evoking sorrow and the other joy, are conflicting. The truth, however, is that they complement each other and are explicitly brought together in today's sacred reading from the letter to the Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews puts words in the mouth of Jesus. See God, I have come to do your will. And in this statement, both are shown as expressions of the perfect obedience Jesus gave to his Father's will. The question, however, remains, why all that was God's will? Why should the eternal Son of God lower himself so much to attaining our human nature with all its limitations? Why should he begin life dependent on his mother, then undergo the whole process of growing up, which includes the discomforts and inconveniences of life that we all go through, and worse, in the household of a lowly laborer and not in the comforts of a Paris? Why should he subject himself to temptation, hostility, rejection, and betrayal? Why at the conclusion of it all, go willingly and knowingly to his passion, to suffer an unjust judgment, mockery, brows and spitting, and the humiliation of being stripped naked, then agree to nails being drilled into his flesh and bones? Why hang on the cross for hours, have his heart torn open with a spear, and eventually end up in a tomb? Why would the loving God will all that on anyone, least of all his beloved son? The answer to that can only be mercy driven by love. Jesus did that in order to raise us with him to God. It was the prize for forgiveness, outpoured love, an assurance that we have become sons and daughters and heirs of divine glory. It means that we are not just adopted or co-opted, we are owned. We are bought at a price, and the price was and still is the life and blood of God himself. The world, however, has not changed an inch despite this unwavering love. I wrote this sermon, and I am preaching it during an unnecessary war being fought in Europe out of pure aggression and big boy or bully mentality. Innocent children and adults who just want to live their daily lives have been uprooted from their homes and lost their livelihoods and will most likely be traumatized for the rest of their lives, that is, if they live to tell the story. This is coming from a nation that has a quasi-state religion that lays claim to orthodoxy and the largest at that, the Russian Orthodox Church.
whose patriarch is rumored to be afraid of the Russian big boy. And I can't help wondering if he has tried to tell him that what he is doing is wrong. Forget about the current war, if you can, and open any newspaper or television, and what hits you on the face is a confirmation of the negative judgment found in Romans 1, 29 to 30. They are steeped in all sorts of injustice, rottenness, greed, and malice, full of envy, murder, langering, treachery, and spite, liberals, slanderers, enemies of God, rude, arrogant and boastful, enterprising in evil, rebellious to parents, without prudence, honor, love, or pity. So, are we doomed as a species and the rest of creation with us? Have we tested God's patience and endurance to its limits? The answer to this is no, because we have an example still stemming from the incarnation event. In Mary, God's love found an answering love. The obedience of Jesus to his Father found a corresponding willingness in the maiden who was to be his mother. His goodness and purity of intention, generosity, selflessness, perseverance, and humility found their reflection in Mary. Mary, however, was not your naive or ignorant everyday girl. At least she was aware that for a woman to give birth, she must have been with a man. How can this be, since I am a virgin? She asks in Luke 1.34. She did not get involved in the project bridery. She engages the angel in dialogue and sought clarity. She knew God as the creator and the author of nature, and hence her question is not so much an expression of doubt, but a surprise and an amazement at the extent God can go to communicate his love for us and for creation. Spiritual masters tell us that God's love is for us as individuals, and that if there was only one person living on earth, Jesus would still have come to die for the redemption of that individual. For Mary alone who said yes, God the Son would still have undertaken the incarnation and accepted his sacrificial death for the sake of her alone. Mary, however, represents the church as the bride of Christ, whose profession of love is explicit in the responsorial psalm that had been assigned for today, which we did not read, Psalm 45. And I would recommend that you read this psalm during your personal spiritual reading or lexio, 
It is a love song that would be helpful to situate in the context of the love of God and God's people, the church. Despite our struggles and despite the sinfulness of the individual members of the church, she still remains holy, all beautiful, all pure, and united in baptism, all of us become worthy recipients of God's enduring love and mercy. We also receive grace in abundance, and the Lord is with us. This enables us to respond to the obedience and love of Christ with unanswering obedience of our own. We should therefore pray hard and always that we may, in obedience and love, come to know the will of God for us. And the portion of the letter to the Hebrews that we read this morning tells us that God's will is for us to be made holy by the offering of his body made once for all by Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, verse 10. William R. Newell, a Bible teacher and a commentator on the book of Romans, summarizes our life with the incarnate Son of God with the following hymn that he composed one day in 1895 on his way to teach a Bible class. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. By God's words at last my sin I learned. Then I tremble at the law I had spanned. Till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly have him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary.